Hello, and welcome back to BU Review Service. Today, we are talking the New York Times documentary, Framing Britney Spears, originally aired on FX on February 5th. And since then, it has been streaming on Hulu. It's a fascinating look into celebrity culture and a really unique and fascinating legal issue uh, that one of the biggest pop stars of our time is currently dealing with. Today, I have with me Shannon Solit, Sierra Sorrentino, and Rachel Gottlieb. How are you guys doing today? Doing good. Great. Great. Yeah. Awesome. So, Shannon, I want to start with you. You are a noted Britney Spears fan. What was the experience like watching this documentary? And can you kind of just introduce what it is about? Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to overstate like the influence that Britney Spears had on me as a kid growing up in the 90s, early 2000s. I like I think I literally joined the choir in second grade so that I could be a singer like Britney when I grew up and like was a singer my whole life through college, like stuck to it. She was really like just sort of a pop icon in ways that I obviously didn't fully understand when I was like eight years old, but yeah, I I loved her. And I think the experience of watching this documentary for me was weird. Like, I, I think it was nostalgic. It was also a little bit painful. There was a lot of like shame that I felt for buying into some of the narratives that later surfaced about her in the, you know, 2007, 2008, because it, I, I definitely remember the switch from liking Britney was cool to liking Britney was not cool and sort of abandoning her after that. So it was, it was emotionally fraught, honestly. <laughs> yeah. And, and Sierra, the documentary really covers that whole arc from, from Britney's origins when she is cool to the breakdown when suddenly she is a leper in our society through this period where she has sort of disappeared from the landscape except through very specific channels. So uh, how does the, the documentary sort of work? How does it chart that arc? I feel like it kind of starts at a good frame for me, especially because I don't, I don't really keep up with her as much as I used to. Like Shannon, I kind of had like a low-key guilt moment where I'd say around 2009, I, I gave up. I was like, no, I'm good. But it really does show her early days, which a lot of people either don't remember or don't know. And it, it's really a pure start to her, like just love of music and, and love of being a performer. And then you see her become like a star overnight when she's like 15 years old. And then you see the success of that. And then you see her relationship with Justin Timberlake. And then it slowly declines and it shows the limits that she's been put under in her conservatorship and just really the total change in her life. And it's, she went from someone who was free to someone who was like controlled by even like a member of her family. And that's just, that's just so, that's the part that really gets me is like, that's her dad. And he's just not fulfilling like the basic parental roles in my mind. And then you kind of end on like a, a hopeful note that hopefully like this will finally after 12 years end for her or at least get better. But yeah, it, it, I feel like it was a good pace for sure. 
And so for those of you who aren't familiar with what Sierra is talking about with the relationship with the father, this, this mysterious and just really strange situation that Britney Spears finds herself in, hang on, we are definitely going to get to that. But first, I want to go back and talk about the first major obstacles that sort of uh, led to this, this pressure building and then the, the big blow up that, that famously occurred around 2008, the tabloid headlines, all of that. And a huge part of that is the paparazzi. So I'm super excited to get Rachel's perspective about this. Rachel, I know you have done some work examining the paparazzi. What was it like for you watching this documentary? What do you have to say about it? So a lot of my feelings and sentiments around it definitely echo um, what Shannon and Sierra already said. I think that first of all, um, when I was a kid, I was so into entertainment news and pop culture. I just ate it up. Um, and a lot of that was because of this radio station I would listen to every morning that did this entertainment news corner every like every 15 minutes or so. And so I, you know, I would read the tabloids and the grocery store line and all that stuff. And so when I was watching the documentary, I had a lot of those feelings of guilt um, for being somebody, even though I was, I was like a preteen, early adolescent at that time. Um, a lot of those feelings of guilt watching the way that they treated her and so many other famous women at that time. But on the other end of things, um, I've done a lot of research on a lot of the laws and ethics that exist around paparazzi. And one of the people who was featured in that documentary, Daniel Ramos, I actually spoke to him for a term paper that I wrote last semester. I spoke to him for probably about somewhere between two and two and a half hours. And he had a lot of perspective to offer on his career and his relationship with Britney Spears and his relationship with celebrities in general. And it's definitely like most things very nuanced and there's a lot of complicating um, factors here. So I had a lot of conflicting feelings while I was watching it um, that felt, and by conflicting, I mean, I really did feel multiple ways that didn't seem like I would feel those ways at the same time, but I did. Yeah, Rachel, I wonder if you, how you responded very specifically to a moment that has since been memed where he, Ramos is like, you know, well, she never told me to stop. She never told me to back off. And the producer is like, what about all the times that she literally did tell you to back off? And he's like, well, she didn't, she didn't sort of repeat it. Like, I don't remember what the exact quote is, but he said like, well, she said that once in like one specific instance, but it wasn't a constant. And I think that was really interesting to me. Like, I've had this conversation with other journalists in my sphere about the idea of like consent as an ethic, <laughs> a journalistic ethic and a principle. And that really, for me, hit home the idea that like somebody asks you one time to back off and you do, but you don't take that as a sort of a, a repeated request. And I, I don't know, how do you respond to that? Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up. I also found that really interesting and um, was a little bit shaken by the response that he gave that was shown in the documentary. And I'm curious to know what other footage they had of their interview with him and what else he said. Because again, I mean, I 
you know, myself as just a BU journalism student, he talked to me for two and a half hours. So I can only imagine how long he spoke to the New York Times for. So he actually, um, he, there's a documentary that he made called Paparazzi Full Throttle LA. And the documentary is made up of footage that he took during his time as a paparazzo um, in the early and mid 2000s, which was sort of like the peak of paparazzi culture. Uh, and I watched it um, about two months ago. And a lot of that footage actually does show Brittany interacting with them very cordially um, and saying things like, oh, like, I love you guys. Like, do you guys wanna come with me? And like literally telling the paparazzi where she's going and saying like, come with me. And I, I thought that that was interesting that that didn't make it in. I can understand why, especially because this episode was only an hour and 14 minutes long um, and it's important to, you know, be narrow. And I also think that, you know, I can understand why the editors of this documentary wouldn't want to necessarily tell this story of like, well, Brittany liked them. Like, what about that? You know, I can see why that didn't make it in too. But also from, from Ramos's perspective, I can maybe also understand why um, there may have been the impression that, that she did want to interact with them and she did like having her photo taken and that sort of thing. So I don't know. Yeah, that's kind of, that's where a lot of the conflicting emotions came in so and so I knew very little about the Britney Spears saga growing up I think as a young boy in America it was less at the forefront of my popular culture I learned a lot by watching it all that said you know I, I think it's pretty easy for people to recognize like oh the paparazzi problematic that's not a huge revelation I think where this documentary really takes off is the stark way that the mainstream media really went after this woman. Mainstream hosts Matt Lauer on NBC, Diane Sawyer on ABC. There's a lot of slut shaming, uh, definitely misogyny, both coded and overt. And it's the kind of thing that I guess it shouldn't be surprising, but still to watch it, you're just kind of like, oh my gosh, like in hindsight, how did we ever think this was okay? Even as this still sort of, sort of goes on. And now I think we've seen, I'm sure you guys have Twitter threads, things like that. We're seeing lots of videos come out going, well, here's this David Letterman interview from 2013 where he treats this guest absolutely horribly. Uh, Sierra, what did you think watching those scenes? And again, just how commonplace it was comedians ripping on Britney Spear, kind of at every turn, people making light of and, and just basking in, in this woman's mental health struggles, really. Yeah, they never gave her a break, did they? Um, they always seemed to just constantly hit her with everything and what what really stood out to me was the Diane Sawyer interview I saw it in the documentary and then I looked up the full version online and I watched that and oh my god it's just it's just so awful and it's just mind-blowing that that's you know that's a professional well-known relatively well-respected well journalist and she's treating her subject in such a judgmental sexist accusatory way what like really bothered me was when they were talking about um, 
Kendall, I'm so sorry, I'm gonna butcher her name, Kendall Eelrich, I believe. And they took a quote from what she said, like, if I had the opportunity, I, I would shoot Britney Spears, basically. That's what she said. And Diane Sawyer said that to her and Britney's like, oh my God, that's horrible. And Diane Sawyer just kind of sat with it and was just like, well, I mean, you are an example for children and it's hard being a parent. And that I had to pause and it blew my mind. I, you basically, in my opinion, you just defended that comment, that statement. And it was just mind boggling to me. And I'm, I'm so sorry that we didn't, as a, I guess a society, didn't recognize this sooner. I think it was just so deep rooted in, in our behaviors that we just kind of, it, it flew over our heads, you know? Okay, Shannon, I'd like to transition now to really what the second half of the documentary is about. So talk to me about how we get from Britney Spears sort of struggles in the tabloid to where we are today, which is this really complex legal issue. Uh, what's that timeline like? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe one of the places that the documentary does a disservice and probably for like very valid ethical journalistic reasons is there are a lot of sort of implications that this conservatorship came to be because of her mental health, but we don't have a very clear understanding of like what that means and sort of what the thresholds are um, for somebody to basically lose their rights. So it helped me to understand that legal conservatorships are usually reserved for like old people who can no longer take care of themselves. So, you know, to sort of put it in that frame and to assume that Brittany in 2007, 2008, after her very public breakdowns and hospitalizations that, by the way, the New York Times documentary um, sort of positions as like as involuntary, which I think is really interesting. She never checked herself into a hospital. There are a lot of questions I think left for me of like, that, that maybe we don't have answers to for good reasons. But yeah, basically backtracking starts with very public mental breakdowns, 2007, 2008. And this is another moment where I felt really sticky and really gross was like, even in the past year, probably, I have seen and shared and interacted with memes that were like, if Britney can survive 2007, like we got this and paparazzi shots of her with a shaved head. And like, she literally didn't survive 2007 in a big way. That's when, that was the tipping point for her. And that was when this, this legal mess began. So Sierra, for those who don't know, what is a conservatorship? What has Britney Spears' life looked like for these last 12 some odd years? Yeah, so um, a conservatorship is basically what, what Shannon said. It's a way for someone to assume legal guardianship over an adult. And um, normally, like, families would often get conservatorships for, um, you know, medical, financial aid, or mental health issues of a parent. So, yeah, someone who's typically older and, and can't really make decisions for themselves. Um, so then they get the conservatorship for somebody who is supposed to be, you know, well-trusted or respected person in that group to be their conservator and basically just kind of look after and guide the person because their mindset or maybe they physically just can't do it anymore. And yeah, it's, it's a stark difference if you look at Britney Spears because this started 
like 12 years ago. And she was, you know, in her prime, she was a young, a young mom, you know, and it's just, it's, it's wild that that's how it started. Um, but basically her dad, Jamie Spears is, has been in charge of her money and her estate for the past 12 years. And he even goes as far to like really put a presence over how and when she should perform, how often, all that kind of stuff. And it's recently she wants her dad to like have less control of that because she's said that like she doesn't trust him and they don't have a, the best relationship history and all of that. So it's even brings the question like, why is he in control even? It just is very uh, slimy. <laughs> I think. Super slimy. I mean, yeah, I think there's a lot to be said about sort of the narrative arc of the documentary makes it feel like this was like sort of weirdly orchestrated from the beginning almost like Brittany was her family's claim to fame, their way out, their way to, I don't know, I don't want to make any of those accusations, but there was definitely a narrative arc that set it up that way. Also, I want to go back, Sierra, to what you said about, like, she was young, she was a mom. And I think that detail, her motherhood, is really important. It just really speaks to the expectation of motherhood in young women and also, like, the way that maternity is weaponized against women when they do it wrong. I don't know if, like, I just, I wonder if she would be where she is now, if she weren't a mother and if she weren't, quote, unquote, doing it wrong. Yeah. And, you know, I think another thought that I'm having around all of this is beyond Brittany herself, so much of the culture at that time revolved and, and the narrative in not just entertainment news media, but other news me media revolves so much around these, you know, young women who quote unquote, like didn't have it together or something like that. Right. I mean, you know, beyond Brittany, you had Paris Hilton, Lindsay Lohan, um, Nicole Richie, Misha Barton, you know, it, people just were so, there was so much consumption around like their legal troubles, their mental health struggles, their struggles with substance use. And I wonder how much of that narrative may have, um, you know, polluted the minds of the people who were presiding over these legal issues, um, not just her family and the people in her personal lives, but perhaps people in the courts um, and the lawyers. And even, you know, I don't know if these cases would have juries, but anyone else who was there, um, it's just, you know, I wonder if the outcome would have been different had this been happening 10 years after the fact. So again, I, I really can't stress this enough. The Britney Spears legal situation is weird. It's strange. As all of you have talked about, this is a legal arrangement that is usually for elderly people, not young, uh, economically productive members of society. And one of the strangest parts about this is Brittany was very economically productive. She was still out there doing residencies in Vegas, raking in millions of dollars as a working pop star. And she's doing this while supposedly not able to sort of function as a full-fledged adult. And this is why she needs her father to control her finances and make life choices for you. And so 
this is kind of a central question. Okay, maybe Brittany has certain problems. We don't know what they would be that prevent her, that, that, that would justify this conservatorship. But if that's so, is there any way that she should then be allowed to go be a pop star? How can you be mentally healthy enough to go live that life out in front of everybody, but not be healthy enough to make very basic choices about the way that you live your life? And while that is all going on, Brittany's father is making money off of those those shows her productivity. He gets, I think it was something like 1.5% of her earnings. And so then you have the, a conflict of interest. Well, you, as a conservator, you do that because you better than the individual can do what's best for them. But now there's a lot of money at stake and is what's best for the money, what's best for Brittany, who knows? So again, I say all this just to really underline the whole thing is a mess. Even with us not knowing all the facts, we can know like this is strange. And so that leads us into where we are today, which is the, the rise of this free Brittany movement. So Sierra, you know a little bit about this world. Yes, so we have to rewind all the way back to when like news of her conservatorship started 2008 and it was a fan site actually and they were like concerned basically for her well-being they were thinking you know this is probably not what she needs not what she wants and it really didn't really catch on I'd say for a long time, because now um, as of April 2019, there was um, protests outside of the West Hollywood City Count, like City Hall, and it was all organized by fans. They all were just really supportive of getting her out of this, you know, what they perceived to be a, a poor situation. And it's just ever since the documentary, even it just launched into this crazy Twitter trend where everybody's now talking about it, which is, which is great. I feel like it kind of needed to get publicized a bit because conservatorships are still so murky. And, you know, we talked about the conflicts of interest and all of that. So I feel like the more people that are aware, maybe this, this won't happen to, you know, regular people or, you know, up and coming artists. So they don't have to go through the same struggles, but yeah, the, even like the ACLU, they, they tweeted and they were like, hey, you know, we support Britney. If you need help, Britney, we got you. You know, everyone should have the right to counsel, that kind of thing. So even like big organizations like them are getting involved because they see just how how pressing this is. And there's even like a, a change.org petition with like over 300,000 signatures and everything. So people are really starting to get involved. You know, of course the dad stole believes the hashtag free Britney thing is a joke but you know of course of course he would that's my opinion <laughs> but yeah it's it's a very wild wild movement I read a piece in Vanity Fair about about it and this was from last November and I this was before that I kind of delved into the conservatorship and everything and I was reading it and I'm like this seems like a parody you know this seems kind of kind of like conspiracy-like, this seems a little wild for me, you know, I'm a huge fan, I've always been, but like, this seems a little bit too wild, and I think the, the writer even compared 
the mindset of the free Britney supporters to like QAnon supporters, just because it's like, they do their own research, you know, they, they connect dots to things that they believe lead to their vision, you know, so maybe that kind of blurs their mind a little bit, but I feel like maybe this documentary kind of gave them more momentum and more of a platform to be like, hey, you know, we were right, that kind of thing, so. Sierra, I'm glad you brought up the conspiracy piece because I have to say this documentary definitely, it certainly suggests that the Free Britney movement is on the right track and something nefarious is going on in the Britney Spears family. That said, when I was watching parts of the Free Britney part of this documentary, my mind immediately did jump to QAnon the way people are going through these Instagram posts, analyzing emojis to try to find the hidden truth within a lot of the language that they used was just definitely reminiscent of the conspiracy type thinking that we've all been reading a lot about lately because of all the, the QAnon stuff and, and similar theories. So Rachel, I wanna get your thoughts on all of this did you have that? And, and does that take away from the movement? I guess just how do you tie that line of thinking in with everything else that's going on here? Yes. Well, John, the thing that you said about when you were watching it and they were talking about analyzing the emojis and, you know, your mind went to the conspiracy stuff. My mind did the same thing. And it was specifically when um, they showed an Instagram post. I think it was of an arch on the beach, like a, not a man-made march, like a, like a geological arch. And the caption was something, something along the lines of like, there's always a way out. And the two creators of the, of the free Britney pod, or I think it's the analyzing Britney Spears' Instagram podcast. I think it was both of them who were like, and we knew, and I just sat there and I was like, seriously, like, no, <laughs> that was my reaction to it personally. Um, and I, I honestly, I kind of feel like to me watching it um, and the fact that the perspective in the documentary led with, you know, analyzing the emojis and analyzing the posts and the captions in order to introduce the Free Britney movement. Honestly, I felt like that kind of, um, it gave them less credibility in a way. For me, I was watching it and I found it interesting even though I had those reactions. But whenever I watch or anything or read any news, I try to imagine what someone who has different views than I do thinks of it or how someone who thinks differently watches it. Um, and I was like, people who A, you know, aren't into pop culture or B, really don't understand any of this might watch this and be like, what? Like, what is the research here? Why are these people your sources? Why are these the people who are leading this conversation? And so I feel, I feel ambivalent about it. That being said, I want to say, I personally, my opinion is that there definitely is something nefarious going on with the conservatorship. It's definitely shady. Also, I, th I believe it was the director of the documentary um, came out and said that she is actually not sure if Britney Spears received their request for comment for the documentary. That is also something that I don't have any trouble believing. But at the same time, you know, using these conspiracy minds, you know, these people with a conspiracy like mindset 
to lead the conversation and to open the conversation into it. I don't know how I feel about that choice. One more line of criticism I want to get into, just related to what Rachel was talking about, is whether we are perpetuating the same old cycle of gossiping about Britney Spears, commenting on things that we don't understand and thus should not be talking about by dissecting this part of her life. Uh, Rachel, you said, and the producers of the documentary put it front and center at the end. We don't know if Britney Spears got our requests. And because of what we know about conservatorships, it's very easy to then imagine, okay, New York Times reached out to Britney and Britney's father said, no, we're not letting the New York Times in here because that's gonna mess up the thing I have going on which would of course be very troubling. You know, if Britney's in that situation, you want people in the media coming out and speaking for her. Alternatively, Britney did not want any part of participating in this documentary and they made it anyway, even after we've watched all this footage of people inserting themselves into Britney Spears' life 12 years ago and all the trouble that it caused her. So Shannon, I'm curious, your thoughts on that. How do you grapple with this as a consumer of media, as a journalist whose first instinct is to just dig in in these places and get information that people might not want? Yeah, I, I mean, I think right now, first, it's hard for me to separate the consumer and journalist in me because I think as a consumer, I want it. <laughs> like this is content that I want to see um, and that I'm curious about. And it sort of helps validate some of my feelings and helps answer some of the questions that I had. And also as a journalist, my instinct is like, this feels newsworthy and it's been generating steam for years. What started as sort of like a niche, potentially conspiratorial social movement has really grown into something with legitimacy potentially. Um, and that feels newsworthy to me it also feels a little bit less exploitative. I mean, yeah, I do think that there's a reality that Brittany did receive requests and didn't want anything to do with it. If that is a reality, not ideal, right? Like as journalists, not ethically great, but it still somehow feels less exploitative to me than paparazzi and like tabloids and even mainstream media who were using her story to sell tabloids, to sell magazines, to get views, not that the New York Times isn't looking for views on this documentary, but, but to me, like, this is a story of like the consequences of exploitation. And we are now seeing the consequences of all of this over-sexualization and hyper-attention and exploitation 12 years later. Well, Sierra, this documentary came out less than two weeks ago, and we already have updates since it was released. Can you fill us in on some of the news that has happened since February 5th. Yes, so the judge of one of the courts actually denied Jamie Spears complete power over the conservatorship, which he, Jamie Spears, gained when Andrew Wallet left in 2019, purely on the grounds because Britney's legal team was like, she doesn't trust her father and wants him completely removed from at least her money and the control over that. 
And that was kind of shocking that she was granted that. Um, but it's not a, it's not a full victory because he still is in there. He's still half because she's trying to get the conservatorship to work with her father and a bank because she wants professionals. If she can't get out of this conservatorship, she at least wants someone who knows finances to be control of that instead of maybe her dad, who I think has impure and not cool plans with her funds. So that is a win for us. And another thing, a lot of people on Twitter everywhere have just been like, Justin Timberlake, Diane Sawyer, you guys owe her an apology. And I was waiting for it. I was like, okay, Justin Timberlake, he is going to release one. His PR publicist is going to be like, duh, you have to. And I got to say, it was exactly what I thought it was going to be. It was very scripted. It, it didn't sound like it came from him. It sounded disingenuous. And he lumped Janet Jackson and Brittany into the same one sentence of an apology when I feel like they both deserved completely separate paragraphs worth of apologies from him. It sounded like this was an apology from a high school ex-boyfriend. He's like, yo, you know, I'm sorry I did that. I should be better. You know, it was that kind of vibe. So he apologized. Yes. But did it do much for me? No, <laughs> not at all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, can we just talk about for a second? Like Justin Timberlake has ruined at least two women's careers, not single-handedly, but like kind of single-handedly. <laughs> and his apology, I agree, Sierra, was very much like, mm, sorry, I made you feel bad many years ago. Yeah. <laughs> And, and the com I just want to bring up to, like you said, Sarah, the conflation of the apology between Britney Spears and Janet Jackson. I mean, talk about two totally separate things. And the fact, too, that um, the Janet Jackson um, thing that happened, there's also, the, you know, one of the factors there is racism as well, which obviously, you know, it's not something that impacts Britney Spears. So it's really the, the fact that he completed those two, that made it seem even more disingenuous. And of course, Justin Timberlake is somebody who, despite this behavior, and he, he's another one who does not come off looking great in this documentary, for sure. His stock in the pop culture landscape has been pretty steadily high for a long time now. So even if we're at the point where we're starting to discuss these issues, we definitely have not hit the consequence phase of whatever reckoning may or may not be coming. Anyway, we are running low on time here, but I want to open it up to you guys. Does anyone have any final thoughts either about the documentary itself or about the Britney Spears situation? Yeah, Rachel, jump right in. So a question that I want to pose that, you know, could be uh, rhetorical, open-ended. Um, and this is something that came up for me a lot when I was doing research on paparazzi and I was beginning to draw conclusions about them and their work and the ethical implications of it, is if we as consumers have the right to know about these things, if we have the right to know about the conservatorship and if having this conversation right now and having this documentary is gossip or if it's a discussion about something that impacts our livelihoods and our mindsets about things, right? Because we are not only cultural consumers of these issues, we're, we're economic consumers of them, right? We spend money to go see Britney Spears at her residency. We 
by the interview, you know, the cover stories about her. We spend time on her social media and look at her ads. And so if I am a fan of Britney, do I therefore have the right to know what she does um, in her personal time? Similar to how maybe I have the right to know what a politician's personal life is like because their decisions and their job impacts my livelihood. I think it's a question that I don't really have the answer to, but I, it's one that I think about a lot. And I do think it's one that is impossible not to ask after having watched this documentary. That mm -hmm. contract between consumer and star and everything in between, the levels of the media and the paparazzi. Like it or not, Britney Spears, since she was a teenager, has been at the center of an economic universe that revolves entirely around her and that all of us have been willing participants in. And that I think is something that everybody who watches this has to sort of grapple with. And I, I agree, I don't think the answers are, are really easy to figure out. And I feel like it would be a, a totally different answer if we're talking strictly men, honestly. Um, because, you know, we didn't see this kind of boy bands at the time that she came up were just as popular, if not more. And they didn't have this kind of backlash. They didn't have this kind of intrusiveness into their lives. You know, they were purely asked about music. They were purely asked about what are, what are the tour dates like? You know, things like that, that's, that circumfaced their career. And, and women throughout, whether they be actresses or musicians, they just get asked completely different questions and they just really kind of peer too hard into their personal lives and into their image. And that's just, that's just wild to me. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point, Sierra. I'm really glad you brought that up. I think there is definitely a contract between consumer and performer, but the contracts are written by very different lawyers. Like they're in totally different languages. <laughs> they look so different. I guess my final thought, totally taking off my like professional journalism hat, is it, I was just really sad for her. And like 2007, 2008 felt like such an inevitable conclusion to a life that just, that derailed. There was a lot of emphasis, I think, in the beginning of the documentary about how controlled, how in control she was over like the songs that she performed and the deals that she made and to lose control, I think not only of, of that, but also of the narrative. It's, it's not only what she does, but what people say about what she does. And I think that is dangerous for anybody. Like to have somebody talk about you in a way that doesn't feel congruent with who you are is maddening. <laughs> so that just makes me really sad. And it's so interesting now listening to songs from like her earlier records like she has songs like overprotected where she talks about how obsessed people are with her and she didn't write those songs but it feels so weird listening to them now thanks for a great conversation rachel shannon and sierra the documentary is new york times presents framing britney spears watch it on hulu definitely a thought-provoking watch that i think all of us would recommend Catch us next week on the review service. We're going to be lightening things up and talking about All the Boys 3 streaming on Netflix. So make sure to tune back in. Bye.